Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about gaslighting. I think it's a good place to start to discuss gaslighting as a psychological phenomenon where you have intimacy, presumably, or a relationship with someone, whether it's whether it's casual, whether it's sexual, and the person manipulates your sense of reality in a particular way that makes you question your own sanity. And so I kind of want to talk about how gaslighting compromises your sense of security in forming relationships Mm -hmm. or how it informs your ability to relate at all with other people. Because it's something that frequently compromises your sense of security and your ability to be vulnerable with someone. I hate gaslighting and I feel like it's a trigger for me because I've just seen it so much in my family and in the academy about how people run away from personal responsibility for things they've said and done. And and by people, I mostly mean men. Although, of course, women can do it. Women do it. White women do it to women of color all the time and men of color. So there's a racial dynamic that's undeniable. But the way that it, I usually see it happening is, is that the perpetrator is trying to present false information that changes the victim's perception of him or herself. And I hate that for women especially and for folks of color and for LGBTQ people and poor people because I feel like the entire culture is set up um, to make them feel financially, emotionally, and socially insecure anyway because of white supremacy or racism or heterosexism or queer hating, that when it happens interpersonally over and over and over through repeated exposure, it has a really tremendous effect on the psyches of all kinds of people. And I've seen it happen and create such toxic families and workplaces. It's really a destructive interpersonal practice. And at the bare minimum, I think that when we think about gaslighting, we really have to think about it as a way of foreclosing the possibility of emotional and social reciprocity. And so people who perpetrate gaslighting, insofar as they're aware of the kind of damage that they're doing, are doing it as a way to retain psychological and social power over their victim, as a way of denying you know, that kind of responsibility and accountability for their role in the relationship, which... I really hate (laughs) because I think that relationships in most of their forms should be built on mutuality and respect, you know, and a sense that the other person has work to do and a responsibility to treat, you know, the other person well. So, yeah, I think that reciprocity is a really key part of um, the fabric of culture that makes it cohesive and and I think gaslighting is a denial of that reciprocity. It's a denial, but it's a sneaky one, right? Mm-hmm, because yeah. a lot of the perpetrators of gaslighting, in some ways, make their victim, if you could say victim, which I think you I can. Think you can, yeah. <laughs> you definitely can. They make their victim feel like they are, that, that they're the ones doing all the work and that they're the ones really mm-hmm. contributing. And you're the one who made me feel bad and you're the one who... <laughs> in this situation and a lot of the time the victim has done nothing wrong 
they're just being accused and accused. Yeah, but I think that there are two kinds. I think there are people who are really nefarious. So the term gaslight comes from this 1944 film starring Ingrid Bergman. And her husband, which was he was played by Charles Boyer, um, wanted to, to, to get her jewelry because it was worth a ton of money. And so he wanted to have her certified insane. And so he would have the gaslights go on and off and on and off and then deny that they were going on and off. Um, and she started to go insane. So that's like intentional gaslighting, you know, with the goal to destabilize the other person. And that happens all. It's like sociopaths do that all the time. And the other kind I think is perhaps more insidious. And it's what happens when people in, in social power, especially men, especially white men, gaslight women about their feelings and tell them that they're crazy or they're jealous or, you know, oh, I, I, I'm not cheating on you. Why would you even say that? You don't trust me. Why are you going through my phone? It's about privacy, right? And they turn the entire interpersonal relationship and the responsibility for its success or failure on the woman who is, who has an instinct about a thing that's happened. And then they're told that they're crazy about it or that they're acting out or they're emotional. And that that happens when women perceive men as emotionally withholding. And it happens when men lie and it happens when men cheat. And it happens when men do a thing that they're not being honest about and women sense it and not understand and are putting together clues about what is off in their relationship. And those are not quite the same things. They come from the same structural place. They come from the same kind of emotional place, but I don't think that they have the same intention behind them. They rewrite reality and then they around male feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Or white force other people to accept (laughs) that reality, even if their reality is distinct. Yeah. I mean, that's why I like Robin D'Angelo's notion of fragility, white fragility, because I think it works well with white fragility, I think it works well with male fragility, and I think it works well with heterosexual fragility. And the notion that, especially in the West, generally, but in the U.S. specifically, the emotional content of people's lives is so thin that it doesn't take much to gaslight them into these roles of victimhood, and that victimhood is clearly a major rhetorical discourse of the contemporary moment that people feel inclined to utilize in basically every kind of relationship that they have, whether it's parent and child or husband and wife or partner and partner or boss and coworker or or subordinate. Those are all relationships where gaslighting can be employed and employed successfully to just perpetuate the institution in which it's happening, whether that's marriage or whether that's the workplace or whatever. And I I feel like the real problem with that is that it's so anti-empathy. It's so anti-emotional. It is so fragile. People who gaslight are fragile people that can't articulate their own desires, can't confront what they want, can't talk with any real talent (laughs) about their feelings or other people's feelings. Gaslighting to me seems like an anti-empathy practice. It is kind of a buzzword right now. Calling out gaslighting is kind of a form of being a killjoy at the moment, right? Oh yeah, totally. And that's funny. Yeah. Sad funny. (laughs) Yeah, but people, it's true, people who are 
uh, active gaslighters are on the defensive now. And because it's received so much attention as like a major (laughs) source of psychological distress for a lot of people. And uh, even on a cultural level, I don't think, I don't think it's receiving the kind of criticism that it deserves because it is completely anti-empathy. It's completely selfish practice. Yeah. I also think it's a byproduct of alienation and isolation in a culture that's so driven by hyperconsumption and that have has absolutely structurally built physical space around keeping people apart, you know, through gated communities or walls or neighborhood demarcations or transportation routes that are designed to segregate neighborhoods or the lack of public transportation. All of those things create social hierarchies within physical and geographic space that make it hard for people to get to know one another and to let go of their fear. And gaslighting at its base is fundamentally about the fear of being seen and being known. It's the fear of exposing secrets. It's the fear of being understood as a sinner or as an unideal mate or as a criminal or as an abuser. People who expose gaslighting are really shining a light, I think, on how that practice structures violence. You know, I think about the Levittowns after World War II and how people move from cities into suburbs and how those suburbs were such a horrible space. And Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique as a meditation on how unhappy housewives were, isolated from the hubbub of the city and the noise and the movement and the diversity and the mobility and how trapped they felt and isolated from their families. They moved out from the cities and were forced to watch, you know, soap operas while they used their new Hoover sweeper. And I feel like that really has always been the model of American culture, is try and balkanize the people who live here as much as possible, which is why rights are concentrated in urban areas, and it's inefficient to deliver democracy to rural areas. But at the end of the day, it's that kind of hyper-segregated culture that gives rise to gaslighting as a pernicious cultural practice. It is also an, an ability to accept responsibility. Yeah, totally. For your actions. Mm-hmm. I mean, a refusal. <laughs> a refusal. Right. I mean, rape culture involves a lot of gaslighting. Like, you drank too much instead of, I shouldn't have touched you. <laughs> or you dress provocatively when the reality is, if someone touches you without your permission, it's, it's not your fault. Donald Trump consistently refuses to accept responsibilities for his words. It's locker room talk. A sexually abusive comment is actually just a joke between some dudes and shouldn't be taken seriously. As in like er discourse of masculinity. Right. And and the fact that that was an acceptable response to a lot of people, and I know that it wasn't also to another entire cohort of people, but to legitimize that comment in any way, that it was locker room talk, it's completely unacceptable. And it just kind of indicates how pervasive and and sometimes how subtle gaslighting can be. I mean, it really does weave itself in to your, like, narrative of reality. Yeah, I mean, 
I think the really dangerous thing about this moment of resurgent white nationalism and, you know, misogyny and anti-immigrant sentiment and isolationist impulse is that gaslighting is the rhetorical practice that drives all of those things. So the immigrants are criminals and the women are whores and the queers are sinners. And that kind of stereotypical labeling of the other is bad for those people because they're going to get denied social rights and they're going to be victims of tremendous amounts of violence even more than they had been. But it's even worse because it it forecloses a possibility of them creating widely circulated public narratives to the contrary. I mean, this is what happens in the abortion discourse with the anti-choice people, like, you shouldn't have had sex if you didn't want the consequences. Well, I mean, is it, it seems really unreasonable to punish people with a human. You didn't like their behavior, so now they should be forced to raise a person? How are children punished? That seems crazy to me. But there's no public discussion about that kind of punitive punishment for women because the problem is that the gaslighting is the vector through which that discourse is expressed. And I think that you can look at any major social issue of the moment and you would find gaslighting there as the basis for justifying what are fundamentally regressive social policies. So it's no surprise to me that in the backlash cycle against the black president that harnesses a ton of resentment about white women too, that you have gaslighting as the primary means of asserting the masculinity of the pussy grabber in chief as a way of signaling to other white men that he understands what they want and what they should, they feel entitled to. And I guess for me, that's the thing is the entitlement to be able to destroy people's senses of self with impunity in such a self-serving way is so fucking wrong. I mean, but that's kind of how our, current political system is operating oh, for yeah. a very oh, long totally time. Is. Like I there is widespread social and economic suffering. Mm-hmm. And the establishment, and I don't mean to be like a Bernie bro about it, but when I say the establishment, but That's right, everybody's a socialist. <laughs> <laughs> the establishment consistently blames people for their own economic misfortune. When there are massive socioeconomic barriers to even achieve economic security. Yeah, totally. That's economics, <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. I, I include Sheryl Sandberg in this definition of the establishment and her uh, lean-in posse. The lean-in circles. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean... How can we integrate ourselves very faithfully into the system that very clearly wants to destroy us? It's just really hard to... To come out against gaslighting on a massive scale when it is a major rhetorical strategy <laughs> that's been employed for a long time. It's funny because among my people, the rhetoricians, for years I'm like, the rhetorical situation is a lie. It's not a thing. We are in an anti-persuasive moment in terms of like a political lacuna. And the reason is, is because gaslighting isn't about persuading. It's about exerting psychological domination over an entire class of people so that you have access to their labor. That is not a persuasive situation. It doesn't take persuasion to do it. It really doesn't take persuasion to maintain it. 
all that it takes is will. And at this point, it is the state exerting its will over all of its subjects to kill them with impunity. I mean, I write a lot about necropolitics, the politics of life and death, and about how death worlds emerge politically. And this is a necropolitical moment, especially if we think about the Affordable Care Act, right? The debates about that right now are so incredible to me that there is any rhetorical space to take up in advocating for just wholesale dumping almost 30 million people off of health insurance. That is crazy. It's unjustifiable. It's relentlessly punitive. It's massively unethical. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to end up dying before this is over if they get their way. And it's also their base. Like that is a necropolitical thing. And the basis for it is the same stereotypes as the 80s, as the same stereotypes as the turn of the century. It's like a hyper-modern discourse to blame the victim and then deny them the services to in some way overcome your stereotype of them. It's, it's just tremendous. And it's not a surprise to me that this kind of discourse is elevated at a moment where public education is in total crisis because it's in the confrontation with the self, which is what the humanities are all about, where you would find the tools to be able to resist um, the domination of gaslighting and find creative ways to destroy it right? It's really in the humanities that you do that. And the social sciences, quite frankly, that's where you have the statistical data to understand how domination works at a structural level. It's really disheartening, the kind of rhetoric that the GOP is using now to push their American Health Care Act. The greatest thing <laughs> since sliced bread, white like, like Wonder the Bread. Congressman Chaffetz, Jason Chaffetz, I mean, it kind of blew up on the internet when he was like, why don't you not buy a $700 iPhone and instead pay pay your health insurance premium like a good American? Yeah, right. People were like, oh, <laughs> I, that's not how it works. Yeah, you don't right? understand the math. <laughs> <laughs> right. And also sometimes access to technology that almost everyone has access to is a human right. Like Wi-Fi in some ways is a human right because you need access to information. You need to be able to call someone when you're... And I, and I know that in some senses that the iPhone is has excessive capabilities as technology and you can call someone when you need to from any kind of device. But it's still a non-argument because the whole plan disadvantages poor people and you can't just tell them not to buy a phone. Also, how because is... Because they're inherently at a disadvantage financially and they're being asked to pay an exorbitant sum for a basic human right that they should have access to. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just don't understand how the argument around poor people having access to health insurance and via that health care is a rejection of capital. <laughs> it's yep. a weird thing for a business tycoon's administration and its lackeys to make the argument that people should divest from Apple when they want to build American tech jobs. I mean, 
that demonstrates to you how painted into the corner they are on this. There's there's no better solution to healthcare that could have been worked out except for single payer, and there wasn't the political will to do that in Congress. They're not going to find one now. So whatever they're going to come up with is legitimately going to be worse than what we already have. And I think that Trump just hangs out the house to dry. They're already putting hit out on Paul Ryan about it. And I think ultimately the thing succumbs to a different kind of gaslighting among federal officials <laughs> where they begin to gaslight each other. You know, I think that that's what's going to end up happening within the Trump administration in the White House. I think it's going to happen, especially with his relationship with the House. And I think that the Senate is most likely placed to flip back to blue as a result of it. I can't help but chuckle a little bit in a sad, funny way about how inequality is so fundamentally American. How we still have the same damaging stereotypes moving through American political culture that we've always ever had, mobilizing and catalyzing white supremacy and misogyny and anti-queer sentiment. I think that if people want to understand this political moment with any political savvy, they have to understand that the virulence of this moment is fundamentally part of the fabric of the American psyche and the culture. Right. He didn't mean don't buy an iPhone. Yeah. Like that was a synecdoche for you're bad at budgeting, which is a synecdoche for stop being poor. We don't care about you mm-hmm. as a person. Yeah, stop <laughs> being so poor. Stop being poor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the whole, I mean, it's just part of a whole narrative that shames people so that this set of people can maintain maintain power because it's based on the fact that not everyone has the same access to resources. I mean, the interesting thing is the way in which it works across time. So the stereotypes are the same. The controlling images are the same of the welfare queen or the poor white person or the immigrant. Those are fairly static images in American political life. I'm really curious. You brought this up before we started recording about generational gaslighting and does it matter that it's the baby boomers that have like perfected this trash discourse and can gen xers and millennials find their way out of what is such a conservative destructive straitjacket of political discourse millennials are still called entitled because they expect to earn a living wage (laughs) even though that's really kind of difficult, especially if you have a lack of economic resources to begin with. It's also tough because millennials have been matriculating from universities. And I I say millennials in the way that the media has been talking about millennials, which is short-sighted and doesn't include a broad spectrum of people who don't have access to even Mm -hmm. university education. Our system of of education doesn't adequately prepare people for the real world, not for college, um, not for adulting, not for a real job. Mm -hmm. And so people get out into the real world and they fail and they think it's their fault. Yeah. (laughs) All their fault. And they've been like met with 
unrealistic expectations their whole lives. And bad data. A lot of times, like, there are kids who get A's that they don't deserve. Mm -hmm. And then they're met with an actual problem. (laughs) And they can't handle it, right? Because they're not being graded. And they've had their, like, their intelligence (laughs) and their worth and their value inflated for a long time. And so they, they just don't have an accurate sense of reality. Yeah. Um, and their parents are fair. doing that to them. Yeah. Their parents are also economically and politically illiterate for the most part. And they're still recycling narratives that were their parents' narratives about what yeah. they should expect. If you work hard, just work hard and you'll make it. As far as I'm concerned, I work pretty hard. I like peeled some blisters off my feet this morning. Yeah. I didn't get those from kicking my feet up and doing nothing. But I, I still don't feel like financially secure and I'm more financially secure than a lot of my peers yeah you know so it's not that easy there's just like an oversimplification of how the economic system works which lends itself to these narratives that bury people in their sense of self-esteem yeah I mean the thing about it is is that the economy has changed the nature of the political moment has changed America and and who makes it up has changed, but clearly Browning, those changing variables are going to yield different results. So when people want security of any kind, in some ways, I think it's kind of misguided. Um, And I think it is one of those dangerous attachments, emotional attachments that people have that just really, it's not real. And as the federal government shrinks under Trump, I think that that notion of what security looks like in a nation is going to change vastly. And I think people are going to have to really reimagine their relationships to their communities, especially their local communities, as a way of resisting political gaslighting and as a way of forging meaningful connections that can help push back against authoritarianism or hypercapitalism or this vapid, empty space of raw power, um, which is really what gaslighting builds, you know, I think in a lot of different political and filial relationships. So... I don't know. I like thinking about gaslighting in the context of lean back because I feel like lean back is fundamentally an anti-gaslighting posture where it's like, I mean, I clearly see the gaslight going on and off and going on and off and going on and off. And that's not my failure to perceive the thing. And I'm also perceiving what's at stake if I buy into your version of reality. And so this political moment, I think, calls on all of us to lean back from the things that the president is tweeting (laughs) and the things that his surrogates are saying on the news cycles and really think long and hard about how the restructuring of the federal government is going to affect the day-to-day distribution of rights and resources that a democracy fundamentally requires. It's difficult though, right? Because part of our lean back practice involves a lot of intimacy and a lot of vulnerability. Yeah, it does. And those are the spaces where people are compromised by gaslighting. Being involved in activism is, is a fraught issue right now because there's a lot of energy being devoted to being more vocal. And it's difficult then to see <laughs> policymakers and congressman on a state and national level moving in a different direction, especially as a woman or as a person of color or 
I mean, the bigger thing for me is that federal policy and state policy are actually creating mental illness. I mean, that's the thing, is that gaslighting as a rhetorical, as a discourse, is actually creating mental illness because people feel so insecure about what their relationship to the nation is, even as citizens. That is the takeaway. I mean, what do you do with a nation of people who can't function in the polis in a productive way because they've been so overwhelmingly victimized by the nation? How do you get them to go and advocate for public education when they've been gaslighted by teachers? How can you get them to advocate for you know, equal pay when they're going to have to advocate against their bosses who've gaslighted them for years? How do you get them to advocate for health insurance and health care when their representatives are telling them that they, they deserve to die because not everybody actually deserves health care as a, as a guaranteed right in democracy? That is a problem. It's a problem because it's grossly unethical. And it's a problem because the left is going to need to find a way to manage that if they want to build anything that really resembles um, a triumphant move away from this kind of punitive policymaking. And so for me, you know, there's a real connection between the interpersonal gaslighting that happens in abusive relationships, whether at home or in the workplace or in public, and the kind of relationship that's happening between the new regime in power in the federal level and at the state level and citizens writ more, more generally. And if we can't understand that, we certainly can't undo it or reimagine it. <laughs>